Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Ken M. Penner. Ken is Professor of Religious Studies at St. Francis Xavier University, and we're talking to Ken today about the new edition, second edition, of the Lexham English Septuagint, just published by Lexham Press, of which Ken is editor. Ken, congratulations on the book, and welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on the show. But before we talk about uh, this really important new edition of the Septuagint, can you tell us something about yourself? I've had a bit of an eclectic educational background. I studied photogrammetry, computer science, before I switched into biblical studies. And I graduated from Regent College with a Master of Christian Studies degree in biblical languages, focusing on Greek verbal aspect. And it was my quest to better understand the context in which Jesus lived that set me on this path to complete an MA and PhD in religious studies at McMaster University with a major in Second Temple Judaism and a minor in early Christianity. I came to my current university, St. Francis Xavier, in 2008, and I had previously taught at Acadia Divinity College. I taught Hebrew Bible and Old Testament, Biblical Greek and Hebrew. And uh, my doctoral research was on the verbal system of the Dead Sea Scrolls, was published by Brill in 2015. I'm always fascinated by the intersection of computers and biblical studies, and I'm editor of not only the Lexham English Septuagint, but also Brill's series on digital biblical studies, and I'm co-director of the online critical Pseudepigrapha. That sounds, that sounds great. Before we dive into discussing the edition itself, can you tell us what is the Septuagint and why does it matter? Well, the Septuagint is a collection of compositions uh, that are an ancient translation of the Hebrew Bible, that is the he- Jewish scriptures, into Greek. Now, the story of the origins of the Septuagint uh, are told in the pseudepigraphal letter of Aristia. So it's a, a legend of the miraculous completion of the Septuagint translation of the Pentateuch, the five first books of the Bible into Greek. And this legend pointed to a committee of 72 translators. And it's the basis for the title that we use today for this translation, because the Latin word for 70 is Septuaginta. And the common abbreviation for the Septuagint is 70 given in Roman numerals, the LXX. So still today, writers will refer to the Septuagint's translators as the 70. Now, that legend has it that all the translators sat down separately to translate the entire Hebrew Bible, and they emerged with precisely identical translations. It's always clearly been a concern of believers that their translations be accurate, and this story of the 70 is an appeal to miraculous divine providence as a guarantee for accuracy. Now, although there are many English translations of the Bible, there are only a few English translations of the Septuagint. Because most English translations of what Protestant Christians call the Old Testament are translations from Hebrew and Aramaic, 
And that's because these are the translations in which these books of the Bible were originally written. By contrast, the Septuagint is, for the most part, itself a translation of these Hebrew and Aramaic biblical books into Greek. And yet, the Septuagint itself should be studied and therefore translated because of the important role it plays in biblical studies. More often than not, when the New Testament writers quote the Jewish scriptures, they quote the Septuagint. Other early Christian literature does the same, including the Apostolic Fathers, post-New Testament, extra-canonical material, and later patristic writings as well. So not only is it likely that the Septuagint was the Bible the Apostle Paul used, it was probably also the one consulted by Josephus, Clement of Rome, Clement of Alexandria, John Chrysostom, and other early church writers. Now, that's fascinating. Ken, could you tell us something about issues of canon and also canonicity? as they uh, respect the Septuagint? Well, uh, the various books of the Septuagint were translated by various people over several centuries, beginning in the 3rd century BCE. We don't know much about the translators, but we have their work. So they translated not just the canonical Hebrew Bible, but also several other books, often called apocryphal or deuterocanonical, though they are accepted in some traditions. And there's even some non-canonical material present, present in what we call the Septuagint, for example, 4th Maccabees and the Psalms of Solomon, because it's present in some of the oldest Greek biblical manuscripts. But when we speak of the canon or the canon of the Bible, I feel like we should put Bible in quotation marks, because that word is not really the best way to talk about scriptures in the first century. When we speak of a Bible nowadays, we tend to mean a single book that contains a collection of ancient Jewish and Christian writings. That is, the 66 books of the Bible for Protestants. Of course, the New Testament wasn't written yet, so those 27 books couldn't have been included anyway in the Septuagint. But also the technology to assemble pages into the choirs that are required to make up a rectangular book with covers. The technology didn't even exist. Instead, people wrote and read from scrolls. So when we speak of a collection of writings, we have to imagine something that would have been stored not in a, a quote-unquote Bible, but on shelves containing several scrolls. And probably almost no one had a shelf with only those 24 scrolls that currently make up the Hebrew Bible and no others. So this simple technological limitation made it difficult to nail down the limits of what would have been included in a Bible. And could you tell us something about canonicity as well? Earlier on in your comments, Ken, you emphasised that Protestant Christians had a certain idea of what the Old Testament canon should be and also what the text of those canonical documents ought to be. Are there other Christian traditions that would look instead to the Septuagint to provide them with a canonical uh, Old Testament Hebrew Bible? Certainly. Um for example, the uh, Greek Orthodox Church would include a different set of uh, scriptures than the Roman Catholics or Protestants. So um, I suppose which translation or which set of scriptures you should use uh, depends on, uh, for example, if you're Jewish, you'll have a, a set of 24 books. 
that match the Protestant Old Testament. Um, Catholics would add uh, another set from the Septuagint, and Greek Orthodox would have an even larger group, so that um, Greek Orthodox Christians would want to read from the Septuagint rather than the Hebrew Bible, because it, for them it is the Septuagint version that's expired, inspired. That's, uh, that's even wonderful. larger than that, uh, Ethiopic Christians would have an 83-book canon, which includes even uh, First Enoch and the Book of Jubilees, for example. Sorry. That's great. Um, Ken, can you tell us something about the current state of play of the Septuagint in terms of scholarly study? In terms of English translations of the Septuagint, today there are three that are widely available in print. Um, and I could add another one that's a little harder to get. So one is the work of a single man, um, Lancelot Charles Lee Brenton. Uh, his translation dates back to the middle of the 19th century. Another one is the Orthodox Study Bible that was published in 2008 by Thomas Nelson. And the third is the New English Translation of the Septuagint produced by a committee of Septuagint scholars and published by Oxford University Press in 2007. It was revised in 2009. So on top of those three, there's the English, or Lexham English Septuagint, uh, in its electronic edition, was uh, produced, what, probably back in, well, I want to say 2012. Uh, and now we have the print edition of the Lexham English Septuagint, which we're calling the second edition. That's a, a revision. And so this Lexham English Septuagint is then the only contemporary English translation of the Septuagint that's made directly from the Greek. Uh, the other, I want to mention one other English translation by Thompson that was uh, also created over 100 years ago. That's a little harder to find. Uh, so there have been English translations uh, on the of the uh, Septuagint, but we find the Lexham English Septuagint fills a need that is uh, hasn't been met by the others, and we're hoping that this uh, Lexham English Septuagint is uh, accessible enough that it could be used in uh, Orthodox congregations who would like a Greek translation, uh, a translation from the Greek rather than from the Hebrew. That's wonderful. And could you tell us something about how you actually prepare a major project like this, all the way through from planning, let's say, through to publication? There's a lot of issues to consider and problems to deal with, aren't there? Well, yes. Uh, the original uh, translation of the Lexham English Septuagint um, was derived from, it has a close relation to the Lexham Greek-English interlinear Septuagint, which is an interlinear, or sorry, uh, electronic resource for Logos Bible software. Uh, so Logos had this interlinear Septuagint with Greek and English glosses for every word. And uh, that was the origin, that was the basis for the initial translation. So uh, Rick Brannon was uh, our technical uh, editor at uh, Logos, and he wrote a program that would reassemble as much as possible those interlinear lines into readable English. And then he took that reassembled material, gave it to the editors uh, to edit, uh, 
in consultation with the Greek text, and that turned into the Lexham English Septuagint. So I was one of the editorial team, the contributing editors. Uh, There's over a dozen of us. Um, and uh, so Rick worked with the copy editing team at Logos to copy edit that material and build it into an electronic resource for the Logos Bible software. And I was one of the editors that Rick invited to turn that machine-generated text into readable English. So I, my allotment included uh, the major prophets, wisdom literature, and Psalms of Solomon. And uh, so I was building on what had already been done by another team of uh, contributors that had produced the interlinear. And so the degree to which I'm responsible for that first edition, Lexham English Septuagint, of each of those books is a factor of how much I had to uh, change what was provided from the interlinear translation. And the quality there varied depending on what how much care each of the editors of the Lexham Greek English interlinear Septuagint had taken. So if uh, the job was done well, I was able to retain much of the wording from the interlinear, and that was the goal of the product, project. But some of the other books required an almost entirely new translation. We were trying to maintain some uh, transparency between the interlinear and the Lexham English Septuagint as a translation so that we could see which words came from where and what are the Greek words behind each of these English words. So uh, when we came to producing the second edition, we were uh, we discussed, uh, Rick and I were uh, the ones that spearheaded this project, and uh, we had already we already had the another project that was completed, another translation of the Septuagint was completed, um, the net, um, New English translation of the Septuagint, which is a published by Oxford. It's a more academic translation. And uh, one of the ways it even felt academic is the way that it handled proper names. So Rick and I had a discussion of how to handle proper names. And at first, uh, uh, his uh, idea was that we should use the familiar proper names that we know from um, from English translations already. For example, Jeremiah rather than what the Nets has as Jeremias. Um, or Isaiah rather than Isaiah's. Um, Moses is what we should use, we decided, rather than Moses, which is, those are just transliterations of the Greek names that were used in the Septuagint. So uh, proper names, uh, Rick insisted uh, that we should use a smooth English um, versions of those names. And uh, now that we've done the second edition of the Lexham English Septuagint, I can see the sense there that uh, um, we we shifted to um, a bit of our translation philosophy is that we should produce a translation that would that felt like or that would carry the understanding that a reader from the fourth century CE would have read. So if uh, if the Greek sounded rough as a translation, 
because it's a translation from Hebrew, if that translation from Hebrew into Greek was rough, we should have that same roughness in our English translation. And if something seemed uh, foreign to the Greek reader, it should also seem foreign in the English translation. On the other hand, if something sounded like natural Greek to that Greek reader from the fourth century, we should make it sound like natural English as well. And so that's why um, I was convinced to use the usual English names that we're familiar with from English translations, because those would the the names in the Septuagint would have been the normal English names that a Greek reader would have been familiar with. So that was one of the issues we had to deal with. Another one was what uh, edition of this Greek Old Testament should we translate? Uh, the Nets translation is a translation of an eclectic Greek text. Uh, so for, for the most part, it's uh, well, for all of it, it either draws from the Greek edition uh, produced by Alfred Ralphs or the Greek edition produced um, by the Göttingen Project. Uh, what those are, uh, those are eclectic texts, which means that uh, the the Greek text is an attempt to reflect the earliest stage that we can recover of the transmission of the Septuagint, of the transmission of the Greek text. That is, as scribes copy it, they'll they may introduce errors inadvertently, and sometimes uh, they'll make changes which they view as improvements um, on purpose. So the Ralphs and the getting in editions are an attempt to get back behind those changes that scribes might have made over the centuries. A diplomatic edition, on the other hand, in contrast to an eclectic, is one in their manuscript as much as possible. And... Uh, in the case of the Lexham English Septuagint, we use a diplomatic edition produced by Sweet in about 100, I guess it's over 100 years ago now. Uh, Sweet's edition of the Septuagint, uh, produced at Cambridge, sometimes uh, called the Cambridge, uh, well, Cambridge Pocket Edition, in contrast to the Cambridge Larger Septuagint, which was uh, also produced there. Um, so the Cambridge uh, edition of Sweet is a diplomatic edition of the text that transcribes the best manuscript available to him for large portions of the text. And for the most part, that would have been Codex Vaticanus. Uh, so the, the Lexham English Septuagint is based on the Sweet edition of the Septuagint, in large part because it is in the public domain and it's available for creating derivative works without having to deal with copyright issues. So Logos was interested in using a text that they could then produce other derivative works. Uh, they've produced their own lexicons, um, interlinears and the like without having to worry about copyright issues because they're basing it on the sweet text. So that's what we also used for the Lexham English Septuagint. Uh, now, here's another point in which I initially uh, had a disagreement with Rick about the textual basis. And that's because uh, my work on Greek Isaiah, oh, I'm working on a commentary on 
Greek Isaiah for the Braille Septuagint commentary series. And my work on Greek Isaiah had shown that Codex Vaticanus had a text with the least claim to originality of any of the three major uncials. So of the three most or three oldest manuscripts, uh, Vaticanus is the worst of the three that he could sweet could have chosen to include as the basis for his text. Uh, but that's what Sweet used, uh, even for Isaiah. Um, now, in books other than Isaiah, Vaticanus is generally of better quality than the other manuscripts. So it's not that Sweet chose his manuscripts poorly. Uh, it's just that for Isaiah, I had some questions that whether this was uh, the best text to use or whether we should use Ralph's edition or the getting in editions, uh, the eclectic texts. So, um, again, I, I agreed to, that we could use Sweet as the basis as long as we included a textual apparatus. Now, there were some footnotes that showed where the Ralph's edition and the Gettingen edition differed from Sweet's edition. Uh, now, those notes, if you have a print edition of the Alexium English Septuagint, you'll notice that the, there are no such notes. And that's because uh, the decision was made after we produced them to remove the textual footnotes until we could do some more extensive verification of those variants. We noticed that there were some inaccuracies. We thought we want to go to publication and we could just leave out the footnotes for now. Uh, but that uh, explains the textual basis. It's a diplomatic edition of Codex Vaticanus that we're translating in the Lexham English Septuagint. And that has some implications for um, what reader we are imagining when we translate from English, or sorry, when we translate into English from the Greek. We're imagining, and we have, we envision, um, as you recall, I, I mentioned the, uh, the fourth century reader as uh, asking the question, did we find, uh, did he find it or she find it smooth or a rough translation into Greek? And uh, so in order to determine whether we should make our English translation rough or smooth at that point, it's that fourth century reader because the fourth century was when Codex Vaticanus was produced. So we're imagining one of the first readers of this Greek manuscript from the fourth century as uh, as our our guide in determining how to render certain words how did that first cent fourth century reader understand the text and there's sometimes when vocabulary has or the meaning of certain words has shifted over the centuries from the time the septuagint was produced to the time it was being read in codex vaticanus and so in those cases when the meaning of a word has changed we've tried to uh, translate into English using the meaning that the fourth century reader would have understand, understood. That's fascinating, Ken. So it's a really historically precise rendering of the text then imagined from that fourth century perspective. That's really, that, that, that must be a really unique way of approaching uh, the matter of translation. That sounds exciting. But from, from the perspective of the person in the pew who might pick up the Lexham English Septuagint, to read it, how would their engagement with this text enhance their Bible reading experience? 
So I guess the question I'm hearing is really why read the Septuagint? And I guess uh, one of the reasons is, uh, as I mentioned, this this is probably the version. Well, or maybe I should I should uh, expand the question a bit here uh, as to what Bible did Jesus read or what Bible did Paul read? Did they read from the Hebrew or from the Greek? Would we be better or would be, we understand the Bible more as Jesus or Paul did if we read it in Greek? Uh, I can address that question in, in that uh, I imagine that Jesus did not read the Greek translation. He probably read in Hebrew. Uh, we have a story in Luke's gospel that has Jesus reading the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue in chapter 4. And the language of that scroll, in my, I think, is almost certainly Hebrew. I don't know of any evidence of translated scrolls being used in Galilean synagogues in the first century. But it, the matter gets complicated because when Luke quotes what Jesus read, he includes Jesus reading the phrase that uh, about recovery of sight to the blind when he's reading from Isaiah 61, verse 1. And that phrase is in the Septuagint manuscripts of Isaiah 61, verse 1. So it's in the Greek, but it's not in the Hebrew. So the question then arises, was Jesus reading from the Greek? Or is there another reason this phrase is included? Was Luke simply quoting from the Septuagint because that's what he had in front of him when he was composing his gospel? Uh, another case, uh, Mark chapter 7 uh, verses 6 to 7, the Isaiah 29, verse 13 is being quoted. And again, what's quoted there is the Septuagint version rather than the Hebrew. And again, in, in John, uh, chapter 1, verse 23, uses the Greek version of Isaiah 40, verse 3. So Matthew 2 uses the Greek scriptures. Uh, as for Paul, sometimes when he quoted the scriptures, he seems to have been working from memory because his words don't exactly match the Greek or the Hebrew. Um, but if you count up the times when his quotes match the Greek and the times it matches the Hebrew, well, there are 12 times when when he quotes Isaiah. That's the book I'm most familiar with. He quotes Isaiah that in a way that doesn't match the Greek or the Hebrew. Um, there are nine times when it matches the Greek, but not the Hebrew, and never once does his quoting of Isaiah match the Hebrew version and not the Greek. So you might conclude from this that the authors of the New Testament read their Bibles, again, still in quotation marks, in the Greek version, that is the Septuagint. So then you might ask, well, should we go out and buy a Lexham English Septuagint so that we can read it in the version that Paul used and the gospel writers used? You know, if it's good enough for St. Paul, is it good enough for me? Well, I suppose there's some sense in that way of thinking, and St. Augustine actually thought that way, that we should read the Septuagint rather than the Hebrew. Uh, but I guess it depends on why you're reading the scriptures. And I'll come back to that question of, of canon and which version is inspired. So if you hold a view of inspiration that says, it's the original words that are authoritative. And you try to trace the, the scriptures as far back as you can. Uh, 
so if it's the original words that are authoritative and not their translation, then you should read uh, what you'd call the Old Testament in Hebrew rather than in Greek. So don't read the Septuagint in that case. In fact, you shouldn't even read it in English if that's what you believe. Only read it in Hebrew. But if you can't read Hebrew, then at least read an English translation that's made from the Hebrew rather than from the Septuagint. So that's not a translation of a translation. But if you hold a different view of scriptural authority, you might come to a different conclusion. Like I mentioned, the Greek Orthodox Christians hold that it's the Septuagint version that's inspired. So when they read the Bible in English, they'll want a translation that's from the Septuagint Greek, not from the Hebrew Bible. And finally, if you want to experience the Bible the way that Paul's Gentile converts and the church fathers did, then yes, you should read the Septuagint. And if you can't read it in Greek, then you should read it in an English translation, which is why you should buy the English Septuagint by Lexham that we produced. But I, get it, I say it depends on why you're reading the scriptures. Your, your publicists uh, are rejoicing, Ken. Yes. <laughs> uh, there's also some reasons, other reasons why the Septuagint is valuable rather than the Hebrew. Not that the Hebrew, uh, I mean, the Hebrew has its own value, but there are some things that you see by reading the Septuagint rather than the Hebrew. And, and here I'm going to draw on or point to a book by Timothy Michael Law called When God Spoke Greek. And uh, he points out three reasons for reading the Septuagint. Uh, for one, it shows how Jewish thought developed between the 3rd century BC and the 1st century AD. So, for example, the translators of the Septuagint sometimes avoided speaking as if God had body parts. You know, expressions like the arm of the Lord or the face of God, those kinds of expressions that make it seem like God had a body are avoided in the Septuagint. And I imagine it's probably to avoid any chance of idolatry, to envision God as having a visible form. So it shows these are some ideas that are developing um, already in the 3rd century BC. So second reason is that you can see how the Septuagint shaped the early church's theology. So when we read about, for example, the virgin birth in Isaiah chapter 7, and uh, uh, the idea that this birth is from someone who is sexually inexperienced is an idea that is much more easily to arrive at if you're reading the Greek translation of the Bible than if you're reading the Hebrew original. Uh, there, it doesn't really speak so much of a virgin as a, a young woman who is pregnant and will give birth to this uh, amazing child. Uh, there's also all the all sorts of ideas in Romans that derive from Isaiah through the Septuagint translation. But also the third reason why it's uh, valuable to read the uh, Septuagint is that even though it's a translation from the Hebrew text, sometimes it reflects an older, that is a more original version of the Hebrew text. Because the Septuagint was made before certain scribal errors crept into the Hebrew text. And the classic example for this is at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 10, the Septuagint, so the Greek preserves 
a paragraph about King Nachash that later got omitted from Hebrew manuscripts. And uh, so if you read the standard scholarly editions of the Hebrew manuscripts, they won't have this fascinating paragraph uh, about King Nahash that you know makes sense in, in at that point. Uh, if you read the Hebrew manuscripts uh, that um, most Bible translations are are based on, this story just gets cut off partway through and uh, moves into the next story. And, and it wasn't until the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, you know, 70 years ago or so, that we found Hebrew manuscripts that included that story about Nachash in Hebrew and confirmed that it was the Septuagint version that had it right. Three reasons. Yeah. That's fascinating, Ken. It's a remarkable project, the Lexham English Septuagint, and we really appreciate the time you spent today talking to us about it how you prepared it and how you saw it through to publication and some of the really fascinating and complex textual and canonical and translation problems that it threw up along the way. Before we wind up um, this afternoon, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment? Well, uh, as I said, uh, my commentary on Greek Isaiah for the Braille Septuagint commentary series is in the final phases. The proofs have been uh, Return for Corrections, and I'm just indexing it now, so that should be coming out this year. Uh, I'm working on, huh, here's an Irish connection, uh, a book for a popular audience called Bono's Bible on scriptural allusions in the lyrics of U2. Uh, and I'm producing an edition of Codex Martialianus's text of Isaiah. So again, uh, edition of the Septuagint, uh, translation from a manuscript that has not been published before and uh, digital images of it became available just a few years ago uh, from the Vatican Library. So I'm doing a critical edition or, of, uh, of that manuscript, a portion of it. Well, that sounds wonderful. Three very different projects. And maybe you'll be able to come back onto the podcast sometime to talk about some of those. Thanks very much for preparing the Lexham English Subturgent, Ken, and thanks for coming onto the show to talk about it. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Well, thanks for your time and take care. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. <laughs>